Hey, this is Nick DiMatteo from Music Is Not A Genre. I just wanted to take a minute to talk to you about the service I use to record and distribute my podcasts. If you haven't heard about Anchor, let me tell you from experience, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Here's why. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. So please take a moment out. If you are planning to create, record, and distribute podcasts, take a look at Anchor. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Music Is Not A Genre, the interview edition. Uh, For those of you who don't know what Music Is Not A Genre is, each week I take uh, an album or a single or just a musical concept, and I discuss it at length. I give you my take on it. I throw in some facts, some interesting information, probably some opinions, uh, bust some myths, and uh, give some history, and I connect it to my music, other music, and other things in the world. Uh, This here uh, is the spin-off edition of that, which is the interview edition. This is the third interview in the series. Uh, thank you, first of all, to everyone who subscribes, uh, who uh, clicks and shares and, and watches and listens. And uh, especially if you are a Patreon supporter, I very much appreciate that. And uh, let's get right to it. Today's uh, guest is uh, just like all the guests, a very special guest. But this is a very special, very special guest. Uh, his name is Nicky DiMatteo. He is a singer, piano man, actor, and an eighth Dan black belt. Uh, there's not, I can't say enough about the things he's done and the career he's had. So instead of me just extending this introduction, I'm going to hand it right over. How are you? I'm fine, buddy. Yeah. I just we just got over COVID, and we're feeling good, both of us. That's right. That's right. Yeah, you had a yeah. case of COVID, and uh, and uh, your partner did as well. Absolutely. And uh, I'm glad to see both of you are doing well. So before we go any further, just so we can clear up any confusion that sure. the audience might have right now, how sure. do we know each other? Yeah, we met um, on November the twenty eighth, nineteen sixty eight. Wow. Which, uh, interestingly enough, is is the day you were born. Oh, okay. I see. At the St. Agnes Hospital in South Philadelphia, which ironically saved my life back in the uh, mid-40s. But that's another story. Uh, so we've known each other. Oh, gee, I already gave away your age. I'm sorry about <laughs> that. I, oh, man. It's the You know, <laughs> well, it's too late now. You can't take it back. Yeah. No. Uh, Nope. Yeah, we're going to keep that in. We're not editing anything, Jimmy. I don't know who Jimmy is. <laughs> um, so, yes, that's right. So this is my dad here. And uh, this is, you know, this is one, uh, this is the interview that I've been waiting for. And I bet that you all have been waiting for it as well. Uh, I have no idea how long this thing's going to go. All I can say is we're going to get into a lot of stuff. and. Sure. Uh, it couldn't be, like, you know, more of a pleasure to just kind of sit and talk like this. Not that we don't do it over the phone and such, but circumstances being what they are, we haven't really seen each other in a while. And this gives us a chance to, uh, you know, I don't know, catch up in public, I guess. That's you can true. Say. 
this is more this is a little more formal than you know talking face to face or on the phone it's it, it has a formality to it but a casual relaxed formality how about that's, that? what, we, that's what we want that's right okay. so why don't uh here's a question why don't you uh as our cat chimes in why don't you tell uh everyone your story <laughs> uh, you, you can start wherever you want to start and throw in whatever you want to throw in as much as you want to do i would love to hear it and if there's something you don't cover that i know about i will mention it anyway reminds me of a cole porter song my story is much too sad to be told that is absolutely untrue well that's a good start yeah my story thank thank god is not sad and so i can tell it uh awesome born in south philadelphia or as we say south philly yeah way back in 1941 uh you know how people grow up and you're growing up you're a kid you you're wondering what you're going to be in life there was never any question among all those all my family and eventually myself as to what I would be doing. And that is singing, plain and simple. Uh, it, interesting, uh, I said that, that St. Agnes saved my life, the hospital. In the mid forties, I contracted double pneumonia and pleurisy. Uh, they pretty much gave up on me. They told my folks to, to get ready to make arrangements and so forth. And uh, then they came back to mom and dad and said, you know, we have something that's been used in the military and it's been used successfully. We'd like to try it on a little Nikki. It was penicillin, which uh, saved my life. Okay, but what uh, when I was two and a half, I was. Uh, I'm I'm telling you because I'm relating what I I've, I've been told. They came to see me in in the St. Agnes Hospital. My family, you know, mom and dad, sisters, and the nuns stopped the the family from going into the children's ward. They said, "Don't go in just yet." Nikki is standing up in his crib, singing to the other kids. And I believe the song was, Mercy dotes and dozy dotes and little lambs eat ivy, a kid'll eat ivy too. Big, big hit back then. But it became, it, it was just an understood thing that that's who I was and that's what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life. So I feel truly blessed to, uh, to be doing and to have done, as it were, what I was supposed to do. I, you know, this is the beginning of a very long and fascinating story and life in music and life in life in general. Yeah. And uh, I hope we get to as much of it as possible. But before we go any further, there's a there's a question I've always wondered if you have the answer to, which is, so you have this origin story of you were two, two and a half, you said, is that right? Yeah. And you, you got sick, you got better and the, you know, new miracle drug and you, you know, you wake up and you're singing. Did anybody ever tell you, because you'd be too, you would have been too young to remember, uh, were you, were you singing before you got sick? Were, were you always singing when you were a baby? Did, was there something in your life in, you know, your family that would have um, influenced you to have such a connection to music so early? 
they did in fact tell me that uh that i was learning songs before i was two years old just um listening to some crank up recording machine we had in the basement and just learning songs that i don't remember naturally but uh I have no reason not to believe what they tell me. Well, and it makes perfect sense. So, you know, kids hear different things when they're, you know, well, the kids hear everything, but kids kind of attach themselves to different things as they're growing up. And for some, it's immediately language. And, you know, uh, for others, it takes a while for that kind of thing to develop. But yeah, for some, it's, it's music. So it sounds like you had kind of a natural ear and affinity for it from before, you know, you could barely speak, you know, bingo. Absolutely. Bingo. No question about it. Now or anybody else's good. Yeah, no. So then, so then I guess then, then what happened? Did your family, your, you know, your mother or your father, your, your sisters, whoever they were, you know, whichever, who, who decided after you got better and started singing, who and at what point did they decide that we're going to take this kid and start to uh, give him more opportunities to sing or or groom him or allow him to sing? I'm not even sure how it happened, but clearly, there, like you said, there was never a point where you didn't know you wanted to do music. But at that early of an age, how did how did it go from just a kid who loves singing and can learn songs easily into a, like a burgeoning very early career? Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Aunt Dolly and Aunt Sarah send their love to you. I just want you to know. Well, that. tell them I said the okay. same. Uh, but the, speaking of Aunt Dolly and Aunt Sarah, uh, when I was in the second grade, uh, I was in you know school, and uh, they came to get me out of school because. A, a traveling like a door-to-door salesman had come to the door and said, is there anybody in this family that sings? And they came and got me. I came to, and I sang for the guy apparently. And he said, okay, fine. And they enrolled me in a, um, a course called the Dale dance studios in Philadelphia on Chestnut street in the presser building. And uh, I started taking voice lessons at about the age of seven with Marie Whartonby, stayed with her for about 10 years. Uh, wonderful, wonderful woman uh, who concentrated on two things primarily as a singer, breathing and diction. Breathing so people can hear you and diction so they can understand you. Mm. So wow. I'd, I started taking lessons then and that's it. it in 19, and that was around 1948 or so. In 51, I auditioned for a, a little, a local television show called the Horn and Harder Children's Hour. It was live television every Sunday, about 1130 on WCAU channel 10. And I, I was eventually, I was on that show for five years. I became kind of a big man on campus in South Philly or in Philadelphia, generally speaking. Um, uh, on television every week, you, you become popular. Uh, recently, we we ran into some of the uh, some of the guys from the Danny and the Juniors, uh, a big Philadelphia group that had a couple of super hits back then, and one of them, Joe Maffei, told me that I was an inspiration to him uh, from seeing me on the Children's Hour, uh, and also Chubby Chubby Checker said the same thing pretty much. God bless you know, I'm, I don't mean to be to- you know tooting my own horn. I'm just saying 
what he told me. Chubby recently told me that he was being interviewed in Cleveland and the interviewer asked him about some of his influences um, uh, in, in becoming a singer. And he told me, he said, Nikki, I, I gave you as one of my influences. I, I felt extremely flattered about that. But again, the children's hour, five years, and then uh, I sang with a, a band, a, a gentleman who named Johnny Austin from Collingswood, New Jersey, real name Johnny D'Augustino, was the hot trumpet player with the Glenn Miller Orchestra back in the late 30s. He started his own band in, uh, in the Philadelphia area. I started singing with Johnny back, back around 55. I was like 13 or so, and I was making $5 a night in 1955, 56, 57. And that, I mean, to a, a guy f- and going to Bartlett Junior High, you know, in, in junior high school, five bucks a night, man, that was cool. I was singing, doing what I love to do. And that's, you know, the it started from there and it just a burgeon than the Arthur Godfrey show in 1957. Uh, that's another story. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's perfect segue because, you know, uh, your manager, better known as mom, um, sent a bunch of notes and and mentioned that. So let me get us up to there. Okay, good. You know, we talked about your early development and I know there's there's actually a recording of you from when you were 10 years old singing Ave Maria and that's online for people who want to check it out. I, I think I'll include that link. Uh, but then 51 to 56, it's the, you know, children's hour. And it stands to reason that at that time, I mean, anytime really, but at that time in Philadelphia, when, you know, it, you know, rock and roll wasn't really even a word that was used yet. And it was kind of proto and just developing and doo-wop and all of that, that people of a similar age, kids in particular, would look at another kid who really what you did was you started earlier and had the the chops earlier than than they might have so what by the by the time they became teens they were like oh there's this this kid that we know it it makes sense that you would be an inspiration based on the timing of all that and your skill yeah that's exactly what happened from the children's hour again the you couldn't get exposure like that. I mean, first of all, let's face it, back then, how many channels were there around, you know, filled up three, six, seven tops? Yeah. And back then, I think there was only three. And uh, so TV was, what you could watch was rather limited at the time. So, And there there it was. The, the children's hour, I could, was comparable, gee, to, what can I say? On a local level, it was comparable to, say, American Idol or America's Got Talent, those these great shows that came out recently that that feature that feature talented people, and that's what it was back then. Uh, the Arthur Godfrey Show. You mentioned my manager, Tony Mumbo was his nickname. He he actually is was best man at our wedding, and he was your he's your godfather. He suggested I lie about my age for for one year. You could not be on the Arthur Godfrey Show unless you were sixteen. God. I was 15 and said I was 16. So now you, you're taking off on that. You you did the children's hour for five years. Is that how Arthur Godfrey discovered you? No, uh, it was Tony's idea to go on the show. That it was called the Talent Scouts, and they'd have like regular people who, who were the were the Talent Scout, 
and Tony's friend from his work, uh, Peggy was her name, I believe. And he, she became my talent scout where Arthur Godfrey will interview the talent scout for a few minutes and the talent scout will explain where they heard me and how, and what they they were impressed with. And then they introduced me. I was one of three acts on the, that, that, uh, Monday night show back in uh, January of 57. And uh, one of them was a hula dancer. <laughs> and the other act was uh, a, a man and woman who sang semi-classical music. Uh, and so, and they, they decided the winner with an applause meter. <laughs> when it came time at the end of the show, the hula dancer, there was, there were a, a contingent of sailors in the audience. Boom. The needle went all the way over for her. And when it came my turn, the needle went almost quite as far, almost as far. And Arthur Godfrey said, you know what? I'm going to tie these two up. And they, well, he was like, he was like the Oprah of his time. Powerful, powerful man. And uh, he decided to make me a co-winner. And how, was, how long had he been doing the show by the time you got on? I believe it was uh, originally on radio. And then uh, went went into television. By the time Fifty Seven rolled around, he was so popular that uh, his his word was amazing. Just he could sell a product. In fact, I remember a Lipton Tea was was one of his sponsors. You know, he could ah. just sell a product by mentioning something. You know, and and then when did you know when he uh, stopped doing the show? No, I don't. I would suspect it's it was in the sixties. It's yeah, yeah, early sixties. But it's a it's really it's always been interesting to me that you know when I was younger, I never thought I don't think I put two and two together. But there was a show uh, back then uh, hosted by Ed McMahon called Star Search, and oh my gracious, that was a very similar kind of thing where it was audience based judges things like that that would determine who would be the winner so for people who are younger watching this uh you know who think that things like america's got talent with voice <laughs> these brand new ideas they've been around for decades and decades um you know possibly even before arthur Godfrey. yeah possibly before right um and and so then you did uh how long were you on that show was it just 57 yeah, what happened was when you won on the talent scout night, which was a Monday night, okay. you automatically get to appear on his televised morning show, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, for that week. And uh, <laughs> I sang two songs a day, made $800 for the week. Now imagine, you know, this little kid from South Philly making $800 a week singing. Now, what happened was Godfrey was going to put me on his Wednesday night show, which was powerful, a one hour variety show. And uh, before he did that, he went off to Lake Placid the following week with his whole show. When he came back from Lake Placid, he called me again and I was on a second week. And then at some point, somebody from Philadelphia called the Arthur Godfrey people and told them that I was not 16. I was 15. The person probably didn't realize he or she was doing me the best favor that could have happened. You know, um, I wound up meeting your mother 
Oh, by the way, I'm looking at your face right now. And Left you hand. you resemble your paternal, your maternal grandfather. I but, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. another story. <laughs> anyway, that's Arthur Godfrey. And uh it was it was a great experience. This Tony Mambo, who was my manager, friend, family friend manager quote at the time, suggested, and this is something I suggest to people who who want to be singers. He suggested to my family he should take piano lessons. And then, that, yes. What, what, 57? Oh, no, it was earlier than 57. It was 55. Oh. I, was, I was 13, and I started taking lessons with a, a, a guy from Philly, Lee Mesa. Studied with him for one year. Tony drove me to North Broad Street in Philadelphia every Monday for a year. We, mm-hmm. I finally found Joe Cavalieri in South Philly, one of the great one of the great piano teachers. And I went to him for, for five more years and piano. I suggest to singers, you want to be a singer, take piano lessons. Mm. Now, it's not absolutely necessary because the voice is a wonderful instrument in and of itself. But the piano lessons for me made the difference between being able to make a living at it on a steady basis, you know, just a, as you well know, for 50 years or so, playing all kinds of lounges and clubs and restaurants and so forth. And uh, met a lot of wonderful people. And just feel that, that singing has been my connection to the spiritual. Uh, God said, you're going to be a singer and you're, you're singing is going to help to bring people closer to me. Hmm. Okay. If you say so, I believe <laughs> you. I'm just going to go with it. Wow, you, you're uh, as as has been happening with these interviews, which is just thrilling to me. Uh, you 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 know recite a passage, what you just said, and like ten things pop off in my head that I want to talk about. Uh, some of which we might get to, I you know. Uh, but the first thing that popped into my head is when you when you post these videos online. One of the things you do is make it easier for people to search for them to find something that they like. And in order to do that, you do something called tags. So you would say on, in the tag section, you'd say Nikki DiMatteo, you'd say singer, you'd maybe say Philadelphia. There's a limited amount of space for these tags. There's no possible way I'm going to be able to include everything you're, you're mentioning. <laughs> and we're only 20 some minutes in. So, you know, it's just the beginning, folks. I'm just, that's just, all I'm saying, uh, right? just goes to show you, pal, you live long enough. <laughs> Well, and yeah, you're, right. and you're worth you're worth a lot of tags. You know? <laughs> there you go. Hey, that should be on a shirt. Um, so and so, one of the things I wanted to go back to though is you mentioned a couple of things like getting knocked off of Arthur Godfrey. Uh, you know, Tony telling you to take piano lessons, and and then the, how that you know affected you uh, in later you know later later on. What what the you know viewers the listeners don't know. Uh, that I do know is that the things you're talking about and the way it affected you happened years later, years later, there were other things that happened in between. And it, to me, that it's this interesting idea of seeds being planted or an event happening that sets off another chain of events that if that event hadn't happened, other things wouldn't have happened. And that that looking back, you can see how it creates this kind of timeline and trajectory for a person's career and life. Wow. Beautifully put. Uh, yeah, well, I, I never wanted to use the piano as a means to make a living. 
Are you kidding? I told your what your mother. She wanted me to play the piano. Now I'm a singer. Singers don't play the piano. I'm a stand up. That's what I did. I, I stand, stand up singing nightclubs and so forth from, from around 1955 through, through, through 70, really 1970. You weren't quite two yet. Um, and uh, so I didn't, I didn't want to play the piano as a means to make a living, but again, you know, Hindsight is twenty twenty, and I realize in hindsight that I was a stupid, self-centered person. That, but that's another story. <laughs> you know, uh, I think I think anyone over a certain age, you hope that they say that because because <laughs> I think at some point, whether it's in your teen years or beyond, we all feel that way. With you know, self-centered, and you know, learning the lessons of life that. Uh, connection to others and compassion and care for others is really what makes all this worth it. You know? Oh, I love that yeah. connection. That's what uh, you and Catherine were talking about in your interview, that wonderful idea of connection. We, we sometimes, we take that for granted in life really. And we shouldn't, it's, it's just this beautiful thing coming from deep inside us, going to the people deep inside them, and bringing that well anyway i don't want at the well, risk of getting, you know getting <laughs> oh no, yeah i'm glad you said that because you it, it connects to the the i think the last thing i wanted to touch on and what, the things that you said is that you have you believe like music creates some kind of a spiritual presence a connection and and all of that no question about it and there's a sense to me that any art or any type of experience that you know, transcends it, the, just its actual instance, you know, whether it's the instance in time or a recording or something like that, that has life beyond that is, is to me, it, it connects to so many other things in the world just by default. And if that thing also has kind of a, um, a transcendence in its, in the way that it's done through through the experience of it or the talent of it or the the you know the the coincidence of time that it occurs in and how it's connected to things that are going on in the world then that multiplies the connection exponentially and so what you've done starting with like you said uh fairly famous people which we are going to get into uh later on in this interview with chubby checker and some of your other friends back there and the guy from danny and the juniors was start this kind of chain of influence and connection through just doing something that you you loved, you were born to do, and you know, and became through hard work, you, you know, very good at. And are you a philosopher as well? Boy, that's beautiful. Yes, that's why I don't make any money. <laughs> uh, you know, philosophers. Um, but so that's so this is this is great. This is uh, this gets us up to a period 55 to 70 that has that has been, you know, I think for my life, the, the most fascinating part in many ways of your history. And that is you were, as you as you term it, a stand up singer. And um, you I mean, I'll, I'll let you describe what that is. And and that carried you through not just various bands and, and, and people you perform with, but even various styles of music. And um, 
I want to hear as much as possible about that. Where, where did it start? The stand-up singing. Back in the in the forties, late forties, um, for me, I was uh, part of a, a group of young people at the St. Martha's House in South Philadelphia, and uh, Fort Dix Army Army Base in, in New Jersey would send army trucks to St. Martha's House to pick up the young people and take them to Fort Dix and do a, a USO show. So I was doing USO shows back in the late 40s. I uh, started working nightclubs in around 55. And, and uh, as again, as a stand-up singer. And the uh, it, it was Tony Mambo, <laughs> whose influence, he loved Frank Sinatra. Uh, at the time, my influence was my sister Sarah and, and Dolly, they loved Perry Como. In fact, on the children's hour, they referred to me as the young Perry Como, but mm. uh, I realized that Sinatra, uh, with his phrasing, had an appeal to to jazz people as well, and uh, so I became a, a Sinatra file as well. And the influence there is uh, palpable, no question about it. But I love all styles, you know. Uh, although I'm not that much into rap, but I guess that was. You know, that would be understandable at my age. Well, so the, those of you listening in, you heard um, a, a little voice in the background. It's my mother, um, who at some point may, you know, say hi. But uh, it, you know, um, it's interesting. It, you know, like I said, this has always been interesting to me. Um, but it makes sense that those would be some primary influences uh, for you based on the recordings that I heard that I've heard of you from that period. And we're talking uh, at the age of 15, sounding like a full grown man, you know, like yeah. vocally, just inc absolutely incredible, which then, uh, so I guess, would you say most of what you sang professionally was in that kind of jazz standard popular uh, style for that period? Great American Songbook, as as we have come to refer to it, uh, the great composers Cole, Cole Porter, George Gershwin, and, and Ira Gershwin, and so forth. Yeah, no question. Uh, that those kinds of songs became, uh, in a sense, the, the 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 basis for the for my singing clubs and stand up singing. For those of you who might, it just means going out on, on the stage, not playing an instrument, just being a singer being backed up by a house band, you have arrangements for the band and you're backed up by them. Uh, and it's, uh, that's what I did for all those years until the spring of 1970. Now, but now that, you know, there's a lot that happened in between there, Sure, that, you know, of course. And one of the things that's always been interesting to me that I've never quite really asked you about or gotten an answer for is that, so you had your, uh, you know, live performances and some of them were captured on TV or, you know, uh, through some type of recording. But then is it it's true then that your debut album was 1960? Was it was that your debut album? 61. 61. Um, and was that your debut was, recording or did you do recordings before? Oh, right. Uh, okay. Right back to the Arthur Godfrey thing. 57. 
Um, I started making pro records professionally around 57. But remembering that um, Mrs. Whartonby, my singer, my singing teacher, was adamant about me not singing rock and roll. I have to... Uh, I have to say that it was kind of a mistake at that point for her to say that because it took me out of that teen thing where I had, I, it took me years to learn how to sing rock and roll, to unlearn what I learned in voice lessons. Uh, I'll tell you another story about that later about Frankie Avalon and so forth, but uh, I'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. It took me years to not use the voice the, the impossible dream voice, as it were, to sing every song. That, you know, if I'm not, if I'm doing, uh, you took a fine time to leave me, Lucille. Not, you know, you can't sing that. You have to, I'm, look, I'm going to go down and say that as far as I'm concerned, rock and roll a hundred years from now is going to be classified as folk music. It's music from the folk uh, it, if you, you know, Frankie once asked me who my voice teacher was because of the Arthur Godfrey show, because of things happening. Uh, no, it was impossible. You don't, you don't need my voice teacher. Sing, just, just let it come out of you. And that's, that's what he did. And among other people, but well, yeah, you, you know, you, you, you talk about, a, uh, I mean, Every every era in the world is, you know, in history is transitional. But you talk about a period in, in history musically that was especially transitional because even though a lot of things did morph and change and fall in and out of popularity at the beginning of, you know, the first part, first half of the 20th century, that shift didn't seem as seismic until you know, rock and roll Absolutely. started to trickle in and take over the, the kind of jazz standards and let, and what we now would call like vocal music. And so you're at this like, you know, watershed moment where these two things are, are crossing over in some ways and conflicting. And so it makes sense to me that both in terms of philosophy, like your voice teacher or in style, like in the way you sing, that there would be a lot of conflict and, and question as to which direction somebody's going to go. And it reminds me of, um, it reminds me of the late seventies, as a matter of fact, where you were talking about a time where rock had become an established thing. And then, you know, like you said, with rock and roll, it was like, you didn't need voice lessons. You know, you had a way of singing, you just sang it. It's a different type of, of, of vocal uh, production in the late seventies punk comes along and everybody's saying that the old rock people are saying that's not music. That's just people <laughs> screaming. Right. And at the same time, rap and hip hop come along and they're saying, well, that's not music. That's just people talking over a beat, you know? And yet these are again, different modes of using your voice expressively to convey lyrics, you know, and, and, you know, which allows music to grow in a way that adds different lyrical content, different vocal content, different productions and things like that. And, in the late 50s, th this was one of those periods where, for better or worse, and your claim is for worse, you were compelled to hang on to kind of the old way of thinking, even though some of your friends and colleagues of your age in South Philly were already starting down the road to rock and roll. 
Absolutely. When I, uh, when I mentioned that Frankie Avalon asked me who my voice teacher was. Now, Frankie and I were on the children's hour together back in the early 50s. And he was a trumpet player at the time. And uh, he said, Bobby Marcucci, who was Frankie's manager, wants me to be a singer. Now, <laughs> I, I gave him my voice teacher's name. But the irony of it, he asked me that question around 1957. Two years later, Frankie is a superstar with Venus. Hey, Venus. Oh, Venus. Number one hit for him. I'm in a recording studio in New York City. Big band. Uh, the Ray Charles singers. Not, not Ray Charles, the what I say Ray Charles, but the Ray Charles singers from the Perry Como show. Uh, in, the, in the recording studio. I'm in a booth with earphones. And I'm singing a song and uh, the guy in the recording booth stops the music. It, has, it says, Nikki, just to me, he's, he's talking just to me now. I don't know how to tell you this, but you're singing too good. I want you to just clip your, clip your lyrics. Don't hold your notes. Try to sound a little more like Frankie Avalon. And therein lies the on irony. Which song was this you said you were singing? A song called Suddenly. Uh, I, it was the only song I ever recorded that hit the top 100 in the, in the uh, country. It didn't go real high or anything, but very high. But uh, it was the only one. He was absolutely right. As I said, it's folk music. You don't, you know, it took me years to unlearn it. By 1970, I started playing and singing as to make a living. And then I began doing it all rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I just, and that's what helped me to, uh, to be able to do what I did in clubs all those years. Well, you, you know, you, uh, well, you bring up a few things. First of all, you, you know, for those of you who don't know, some of the people that you kind of hung out with back in the day, Frankie Avalon was one of them. Chubby Checker, like you mentioned, uh, Fabian, Bobby Rydell, you know, um all all people from philly you know many of whom including so many of these damn people were italian you know like what's up with <laughs> you, you know like cockroach cockroaches you know yeah. <laughs> um but but what's what's interesting to me there is here you are and you have this history of singing for big bands and such like that and your your debut full album comes out in 61 blame it on my youth standards just so dynamically produced. It's just a great album. If you anybody who wants to go look, blame it on my youth, Nikki DiMatteo. Suddenly came out in 60 or 61? Uh, uh, late 59. It came out in late 59. Yeah. And according to things I've seen on the internet, it charted in 60 or something like that. Yeah. You know? fact, uh, uh, because of Suddenly, I got, a, I got a rock and roll tour out of it. Well, so here you go. Yeah, right. You, despite whatever anybody said, you record this song that was also recorded by Petula Clark. Uh, look that up. I prefer his version, of course. Um, but you, re you recorded it too. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I've died I recently on my Band Rex latest album. I did a cover of Suddenly, on which uh, you love it. Uh, yeah. Does some backup vocals as well and a little bit of lead in there. And yeah. so, and, and so, you had you'd like this conflict is right there in real time where 
you're still planning to do this full album of standards. But prior to that, you have this the biggest single of your career, which is a clear kind of, you know, uh, not first wave of rock and roll, but kind of that second wave of, of rock and roll that came in with people like, you know, Frankie Avalon sure. and, 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 you know, the teen idols. Yeah. Yeah. In the teen idols. And that's such a, that is such an interesting crossover. And so what I didn't know then is that from that, you, uh, that was the song that got you on the rock and roll tours. Right. Did you continue to do, both kinds of music. Yes, okay. no question. In fact, the uh, the year later, '61 uh, is when I matriculated. How about that word? Uh, at LaSalle College in Philadelphia, and I was there for five years. Uh, but I recorded a, an old uh, Victimone standard called "I Have But One Heart." In Italian, it's "Vigino Mare." Anyway, I'd recorded it in the style of "Suddenly." And that song was a local hit in Philadelphia. I know that, yeah. And it got me some uh, important club work in Philadelphia. Skiolas, uh, that in one of the one of the better, better clubs in the Philadelphia area. And it's so, yeah. It's kind of like a, an irony. Yeah, I'm recording, and I'm not. It's it's, it's almost non singing. Don't sing <laughs> it. Just kind of like almost speak it you know again don't hold your notes don't use vibrato don't I, I'm, I'm sorry what was that oh that's uh an angel got its wings he can i got it yeah <laughs> love that movie yeah. okay but yeah you know the the tangents we could go on are so numerous like you said you know well so i didn't know that was like so that was like your follow-up single then it was one heart. Yeah, it didn't it did not hit any national uh, charts at all did it feel now? So I, you no one may know this, but I have had some classical training, both in vo- voice and piano, and have certainly I've sung standards and done some classical type, you know, music. And I understand the difference in feel between singing that, singing jazz, singing rock and roll, singing country, and all the different styles. But it's interesting to me that you say that when you were doing it it didn't feel like you were singing. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's almost like uh, you're, you're almost, you're acting. I'm acting like uh, a person who never took voice lessons. And I'm, I'm another character, uh, which gets into another thing about singing and acting. Oh, I, I, they're so important. The acting is so important to get the message across. The, to 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 understand the message yourself and give it to the uh, give it to the audience um mm. actually i'm doing that now in church that's where yes you know, i play i play piano and i sing the mass um or i may just canter somebody else is playing and uh, you do you want to get the message of the words the, the uh, it's doing it again busy day in heaven people so you know <laughs> enjoy it uh that's that's fine don't don't even worry about it um okay well yeah and i've you know so we talk a lot uh you and i talk a lot off and on about spirituality religion things like that Mm -hmm. you know and we have our places where we agree and converge and places where we we you know 
maybe don't uh, agree. But one thing I think that, that uh, you know, I don't necessarily voice as much is that um, singing music of any kind, if done in a certain way, can be a very spiritual experience. And mm-hmm. you kind of said that, right? Absolutely. And uh, part of that come came from certainly growing up in, you know, a household with you. It, it also came from uh, growing up at a time where I, you know, I uh, was, you know, born and raised Catholic, uh, going to a church where uh, secular style music was being allowed in more and the acoustic guitar, right. things like that. And to kind of, you know, um, gospel music was a huge influence on soul music and on other kinds of rock and roll music and things like that. And so I think that there's often this kind of um, false wall between secular music, music and religious music that has always been kind of off-putting to me. And, and anybody who watches me knows that my whole thing is music is not a genre. The, the, the yeah, right. walls and distinctions and barriers and things like that um, don't really exist. We just create labels to make it more convenient. And, you know, part of my upbringing, certainly, and your influence, and, and just kind of, you know, knowing enough about history and the types of music there are, it makes it, it, makes it easy to see that these there there doesn't need to be that kind of distinction that if you're listening for example i'm a big u2 fan and the first time i ever saw them in concert was an app that was an absolutely spiritual experience right Uh and regardless of whether they were singing one of their more religious based songs or most of what they sing which is not necessarily that um it had that feeling to it it was uplifting you could feel the tingling and all the things that go on I don't see why that needs to be any different in terms of experience than, you know, something like you're doing now, which is uh, donating or, uh, well, not donating, but you are giving your skills, your talent to the church in the ways that you do and um, enhancing the mass and inspiring the people there. And to me, it's, it's different venues, Certainly, in many ways, different content, but this, but the same result. Same result. I, I, I don't get paid for singing. The singing is a, a give back right. to the church. I do get paid for playing the piano. <laughs> Comes back to Tony Mambo again, telling my fam, mom and dad that I should take piano lessons. And from that, I started giving you lessons. I think when you were about five or something. But uh, yeah, the influences are are there and getting the message across is more important maybe than we even realize Mm. more important. And and that's something we're going to keep touching on. I think in this, in this interview, I want to just so everyone knows uh, what I thought might happen. This is going to be a two-parter and I know that you in particular dad hate cliffhangers, but I'm sorry to everyone there. We're going to have to split this up because it's going to be too much good stuff. But to kind of put a little, uh, you know, bow on this on this first part, <laughs> can you give me um, um, a little more of your experience from, say, uh, you know, 61 to 70, starting with the, the rock and roll tours that you were on, some of the interesting facts about those, and then how that morphed, uh, you know, and and or coincided with or conflicted with the other kinds of singing you were doing during that period? Yeah, when uh, 
when I was on the Children's Hour, uh, one of the main directors of the show was a, a gentleman named Merrill Brockway. Um, I started making records again uh, in 57 after the Arthur Godfrey show. Uh, there are a whole lot of records out there, uh, singles, 45s uh, of me. And my record career, by the, by the time 1961 rolled around, it had peaked, if you will. Uh, I'll talk about that rock and roll tour later. But Merle Brockway suggested, why don't you go to college? I said, what, what do you mean college? What do I need college for? And I'm a singer. <laughs> there again, we're talking about a kind of a stupid, naive South Philly guy. But anyway, I enrolled at LaSalle College, September of 61. Again, I stayed there five years because you needed 132 hours to graduate. And I wanted to keep my index up. I was a little competitive, you know, my, my uh, grade point average. And I was working my clubs, singing, staying out late and so forth. And there I was. But yeah, LaSalle College intervened, as it were, for five years. I was in the plays. I was in the musicals. So by 66, I had, I had met some, in 64, I met this uh, beautiful blonde. Her name was Julie. And I met her in the summer of 64. And by 66, I think realized I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her. And by the fall of 66, I proposed. And we were married in 67. And uh, the rest is history, as the cliche goes. And you're, oh, part, I mean, you're part of that history. And your, your brother, life. Dave. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, so college really kind of shifted what you were doing at the time. But before, before we get to that, I, can you just touch a little bit more on, the, on the, what happened before then, the rock and roll tour tours? Yeah, that tour was uh, 1960. It was a, a bus tour, 31 nighters, as they say. Mm -hmm. uh, we slept on the bus, most all of us, uh, most of the time. Occasionally, we went to a hotel of the 31 nighters. Uh, we probably slept in a hotel uh, six or seven nights. The rest we slept on the bus. Uh, the interesting thing was that particular tour started in Chicago, went throughout the Midwest, up into Canada a little bit. A year earlier, the exact same tour was taken by Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, and Richie Valens, and Dion and the Belmonts. Uh, they left. It was a Tuesday morning. Clear Lake, Iowa. You leave Clear Lake, Iowa, and you and you go to North Dakota. Well, Buddy Holly had enough money to be able to rent a little plane to go to North Dakota. It was about a 400 mile. And everybody knows, he was saying bye, bye, Miss American Pie. Mm -hmm. the, the day the music died. Yep. February the 3rd, 1959, Tuesday morning. And uh, so Dion, here. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Dion was almost on that bus, Dion and the, and the Belmonts. They were on, but uh, Dion was offered a, a, a seat on the bus for $39. A plane, I'm sorry, the plane, the plane. $39. And Dion said to, uh, basically said to Buddy Holly, 
I can't see myself spending $39 for a plane ride, which is how much my mom and dad spend for a monthly rent. Oh man. In the Bronx. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, and uh, we saw him a couple, uh, like an, oh, you in did. late 2019, I want to say, uh, took uh, kids to um, this show and he oh, was man. one of the featured singers. Uh, about he's still out there doing his stuff too yes, he's, he's about i think he's in his mid 80s now Dion, he, okay Gucci, somewhere in that area yeah another damn italian yeah. um <laughs> so yeah so okay so we you know you did the same exact tour for the the, the you know a year later yeah Balance, big bopper buddy holly and uh and then was that it no because i know you also went to south america too right Oh, that that didn't happen until the uh, 1965. I was I was working the jockey club uh, in 1964 for the summer. Uh, they do again doing a stand up singing. And that uh, is where for people who don't know, uh, the jockey club is in Atlantic City, mm-hmm. New Jersey. Uh, was that near or similar to the 500 club? Is uh... Uh, it, it the 500 club was uh, above the jockey club in terms of reputation because it's the only club in on the Eastern seaboard that Frank Sinatra would work at the time. And wasn't there a story there? There is. Yeah. Yeah. I, worked, yeah. I worked two, two summers at the 500 club, uh, summer 58 and the summer 59. Right. And, uh, that was a wonderful experience. I, I always say it was baptism under fire is what it was. Mm-hmm. It worked the front room of the 500 club. It was just wonderful. You know, in, in one corner, Joe DiMaggio would be sitting there, you know, wow. you know, Another, there, there were other people I've seen sitting. some of the pictures, yeah. Milton yeah, Berle, sure. and, yeah, Milton Berle, right? Uh, but then, didn't weren't you bumped at some point, or what happened there? Then they say you couldn't sing or something like that. Oh, no, only when uh, when Sinatra was coming to the 500 Club, Skinny Diamato, the owner of the five, told Tony, my manager, Look, when Frank is here, I don't want Nikki singing. It's, it had nothing to do with me being a competition for Sinatra. It, what it was you don't want two singers or you know that sort of thing and that was i understood that okay it was a wonderful experience just i get to see sinatra close up you know yeah <laughs> i got yeah. to meet meet sammy davis did not meet sinatra but you know sammy davis Vic Damone. yeah that's amazing all these people yeah. so let's go back to 65 and the jockey club okay uh, at 64, the Jockey Club. 64. Uh, one of the uh, one of the uh, performers was a uh, from South America, and her friend was an agent, Lena Grun was her name, and Lena wanted booked me into South America, uh, f- for about seven weeks, uh, for the summer of 65, and so I spent three weeks in Lima, Peru, and four weeks in Buenos Aires. Mm. And that was a wonderful experience as well. Uh, Incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, you but, know, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say is what's amazing to me is then here I am putting out all of my music and, you know, trying to stay as socially connected as possible as everybody does. And a couple of years ago, I stumbled on a woman from Argentina. Oh, my. And uh, she she asked me if I was related to you. No kidding. And it turns out that uh, she was a huge, huge fan of yours and still has some of your materials and things is like that. that. And her daughter, <laughs> now her daughter is connected with, with me and, and, you know, 
by extension with you. That's the first time I'm hearing that. Yeah, her name is, is great. Well, her first name is Sylvia, and uh, and so and and interestingly enough, and a an Italian, but born and raised in, in Argentina. Argentina. So actually a lot of Italians down in South America. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's not the first time that's happened. There've been several times where someone has seen my name uh, and said, are you related to this Nicky DiMatteo? And for some <laughs> reason, you know, other than Philly people and people we might know, you know, uh, sure. just a few times removed, for some reason, the, the it's that South American connection that seems to be the, the one that pops up the most. I actually met cousins in South America <laughs> because my, my father's sister, one of his sisters, settled in Montevideo, Uruguay. Mm. And, uh, of course, that's close to Argentina. And they, they saw me on television. I, I'm, uh, they're, they're cousins. You know, <laughs> it's, it, The world gets smaller as I get older, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, and, and I just a weird, you know, side thing. I bumped into cousins online a few years ago who still live in, uh, well, they live in Naples. Oh, and really? they run a boutique. They have their own fashion line and everything like that. <laughs> and so now Catherine and I have connected our, our oh, fashion, you know, apparel company, Snark Shirts by Pete, with, with them. And it's just this weird kind of full circle thing. It's, it's great. You never know where you're going to find family related or not. <laughs> uh, so all right so then you did this argentina thing you back you graduated college in 66 but you did you were still recording during that period or not i yeah i was uh i i guess my last professional recordings as it were were, were the singles i should say were, were around 66 or so and uh that's that was it i recorded something called i want to be lonely uh, yeah, in 66. Then what happened from, let's say, because uh, you you mark your stand-up singing through 1970. What happened between 66 right. and 70? In uh, 67, I married this this beautiful Hungarian person. Uh, I, I don't know who you're... Yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Actually, we're still married. Yeah, we are. Well, so the rest of your life, things going well so far. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say amen to that. <laughs> but yeah, uh, 67, we married. I still uh, worked. I was working clubs. I was doing what we call club dates, where you uh, just go into a hotel and you do a show for people and, you know, with a house band, and that's fine. And that's hmm. what I was doing uh, in 67 to 70. 1970, I'm hired to work a place in Atlantic City called Pal Joey's run by a former fighter named Joey Falco. And uh, he hired me for the summer, but in, in the spring of, uh, I started working for him. And in the spring, he fired the band. And, you know, your your mom and I were out there. You, were, you weren't quite too, uh, we had to rent a place for the summer. And, and she said, why don't you just tell Joey you play the piano? I said, I don't want to do that. We had no choice. I had just bought this. Uh, in fact, I see it behind you, the custom uh, speakers and the custom sound system. Yeah, the blue. Wow. Just bought that. Now I know how old they are. Okay. With money I borrowed from my mom, you know. And uh, so I, okay. So I went to Joey. and said, Joey, I play the piano. He said, okay, sure. And talk about 
the phrase, the rest is history. I mean, uh, I was playing and singing there and somebody from Philadelphia magazine, very popular magazine, the Philadelphia area, came and saw me there, gave me, uh, well, yeah, they were doing a, an article on Atlantic City and they gave me this wonderful, wonderful uh, review. Well, people started flocking in and uh, one thing led to another. And then I've been playing and singing the piano at the piano ever since. Great place to stop because okay. uh, we're gonna we're gonna call that part one, people. And uh, <laughs> next next week you're gonna get to see part two, which of oh. course uh, behind the scenes means we're just gonna take a, a bathroom break and continue here. <laughs> uh, but I I wanna I have a couple of questions about that the period, the very late sixties sure. and nineteen seventy, and that will help us kick off. The, uh, the the part two of this uh, interview. So uh, for those of you who for some reason uh, have no desire to see part two, which is crazy to me, but I will say as, as always, um, uh, I mean, thank you to my guest, uh, Nikki DiMatteo. Thank you. And uh, thank you to all of you for, for uh, listening and watching and uh, subscribing and clicking and sharing and, you know, uh, you know paying your dues and donating you. and uh, being a Patreon uh, supporter. And uh, tune in uh, next week for part two. <laughs> it's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.